Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. We talk about sin a lot. We talk about forgiveness of sin. But I think sometimes that talk and that idea of sin easily becomes an abstraction, right? Sin is something that we can argue about. We can argue about what is and is not a sin. We could argue about uh, how we determine whether or not something is a sin. We could even argue about which sins are worse than other sins, and that's what we tend to do, argue, as if sin was primarily an intellectual concept, something that God had given us as a sort of idea to work out and to think about, something that he wanted us to basically fight one another over, an intellectual concept, a doctrine that each of us is called to have a position on. But where sin can easily become an abstraction to us, death is real. Death is real. Death is not an abstraction. It is concrete. We can rationalize ourselves out of the reality of sin, but you cannot rationalize your way out of death. As a young boy growing up in church, there were two deaths in particular that um, influenced me, that shaped me, that, that honestly, uh, they just shocked me. One was the, the death, I remember the funeral of the music director at our church, uh, Len, who directed music on Sundays, but, but worked as a delivery man during the week, and someone robbed his truck while he was staying overnight somewhere, and he interrupted them and was murdered. I don't remember the words that were spoken at the, at the service. I don't remember the sermon that was preached. I'm sure the gospel was pre- presented. I don't remember any of that. I remember the expression on people's faces. I remember the shock that, that people I was accustomed to seeing uh, smiling and happy were just shocked at what had taken place. Death had entered into uh, their comfortable lives, had interrupted in a way that none of us had seen coming. Later on, there was another funeral. Uh, my best friend in high school, Mike, who died accidentally in a horrific accident. Um, and I was a pallbearer at his funeral. And again, I don't remember anything that was said. I don't remember the sermon. I don't remember the text that was preached. I couldn't tell you if it was eloquent or not, if the words were appropriate to the moment. I remember not the words, but the sight of his father through tears, talking about his hope in the resurrection. But what I mainly remember is the weight of his coffin as one of the people who had to carry it. And I remember my fear that I was going to drop it. These interruptions in life, these deaths, were unexpected, were shocking, were were things you had to face. Things, realities, I was tempted to suppress. There's nothing abstract. There's nothing theoretical about these events. The grief, the pain, the loss, the sense of injustice, the anger, all of that was real. All of that went deep. There's nothing abstract about it. When we talk about the kingdom of God, 
it would be easy for us to think of this as an abstraction too, as, as something mainly meant to be understood intellectually. But if you want to understand, if you want to know what the kingdom of God means to you, then you need to know what the kingdom of God means for death. And that is the point of the words that Peter speaks in the verses that we have to look at. Peter is going to give a compact summary of the gospel, but where he ends in that summary is, I would argue, the most important part of what he has to say for us, because it speaks to the unexpected impact of the gospel. Starting in verse 22, Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It's the word of the Lord. Peter's summary, his thumbnail sketch of the message of the gospel. The gospel, as Peter recounts it, is a story of Christ's death and resurrection, but also of his innocence and your guilt, of God's decree and your responsibility. You might put it this way. As we look at at verses 22 through 24, you see in this this compact statement of the gospel, a sort of core of the teaching of Christianity, a core of what it means to be a Christian. And it's a core expressed in three parts. And each of those parts is an opposition. It's sort of a two-part statement that opposes one idea to another. First, there's death and resurrection. Death and coming to life again. Secondly, there's innocence and guilt. Innocence and guilt. And the third is decree and responsibility. So first, the major theme of what Peter is saying is Christ's death and resurrection. If you cut out all the parenthetical statements in verses 22, 23, and 24, and just kind of put together the the, the general statement. It's something like this. Jesus was killed, and God raised him up, and that's why we're here. All of the signs, the miracles that introduced Pentecost that gathered the crowd, now Peter comes, and he speaks to the people, and what he proclaims is not, thanks to the anointing of the Holy Spirit, we now have this, this power. What he proclaims is, the death and the resurrection of Christ. The death and the resurrection of Christ and those two things in opposition to one another, that that this man died, but God raised him up. That's the core of the gospel. It is the most important thing to know about the ministry of Jesus, that he died, that he was crucified, and all that comes with that, and that he was raised again, and all that comes with that, those two things... If you hold those two things in your mind, then you have it. Then you have the story of Jesus and why he came. But there are some some 
subpoints, some some minor themes within that major theme. The 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 second of these three things is Christ's innocence and your guilt. Jesus was a man who was attested to you by signs and wonders, mighty works that God did. In your presence, Peter says, as you yourselves know. He puts them on the hook for that knowledge. Because you've seen it. You saw who this man was. It was testified by the acts that God performed through him. You killed him, Peter says, lawlessly. In other words, he was innocent. He did not deserve what he got. He did not die because he had it coming. He was an innocent man who was wrongly accused, who was unjustly punished for crimes he had not committed. Christ's innocence opposed to your guilt. The third theme is God's decree and your responsibility. Peter says Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, and yet you are responsible for what you've done. This happened, he says, according to God's definite plan and foreknowledge. But it's interesting what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, you handed him over to be crucified, but it was God's plan, God's foreknowledge, so you're not to blame. Don't worry about it. It's just God working in you. You're not responsible. Don't sweat it. He doesn't say those things. In fact, it's just the opposite. Like he's asserting their complicity. He's asserting their guilt in a deed which he also believes God planned. God's decree and your responsibility. I'm going to suggest to you that the riches of the gospel, that the many layers of the gospel, that all the complexity of all of the doctrines and all the teaching have been compressed into these three ideas, these three oppositions, and that if you can keep those three things in mind, and as you meditate on the riches of the gospel, if, if you can hold on to all of them, if as you grow in understanding of the gospel, you don't lose any of those things, then you will understand, you will be meditating on the gospel that Peter proclaims at Pentecost. Knowing your guilt and accepting your responsibility, these are the things that awaken us to our need. There would be no need for grace, if there wasn't guilt, and if there wasn't responsibility for that guilt. If we deny our guilt, and we try to to dodge our responsibility, then, then we don't need a Savior, because we haven't done anything. Core to the gospel is that understanding of guilt, that acceptance of responsibility. But also essential is the knowledge of Christ's innocence, because it was Christ's innocent death and the resurrection worked by God that actually deliver the grace that we need. So the need is awakened by the guilt and responsibility, but the grace is delivered by the innocent death and resurrection of Christ. And if you doubt it, and we all do, at one time or another, it becomes an abstraction to us. It becomes something unreal, intangible. When we doubt, we can have confidence because of that last thing, God's decree. 
Peter says that what happened here wasn't chance, it wasn't random, it wasn't contingent. It's not something that will only take place if we believe hard enough, if we, we want it bad enough, that in fact these are things God did and is doing and will do. And we can have confidence that what he has begun, he will finish. And Peter makes the case verse by verse. Verse 22, he focuses on the way that Jesus was revealed to us as the Messiah. He was revealed to be the promised one, and the way that that was revealed was through signs, through these miraculous acts that Jesus performed. And Peter says all of these things that Jesus did, all of the, the signs that accompanied him, these were things God did through him. Right? These were divine things that were done through Jesus, and they had a purpose. I think this is significant because... As we said before, it's easy to look at all of the, the, the great deeds in Scripture, the miracles, the wonders, and think that they exist for their own sake just to show that God can do stuff like that. But in fact, the signs serve a purpose, and the purpose is to attest. The purpose is to bear witness. The reason why the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, was accompanied by so many signs is that they attested to the fact that he was the one who was promised. They were a guarantee that this is the one. This is the one. A person like John the Baptist who administered faithfully could look at Jesus, who was a guy he knew, and recognize the Son of God because of the signs and wonders that were performed, because of the things that he had seen, that they attested to the fact that Jesus was who he claimed to be. That was their purpose. Just as during the apostolic ministry, there were signs and wonders performed. And those two attested to the validity, the authority of that witness. The authority of that witness that is preserved for us in Scripture. The signs serve a purpose. They're meant to bear witness to us. The thing is, if you know about the signs, you're on the hook. If you know about the signs, if you've witnessed the signs, if they've been performed before you, then you are responsible like, you have knowledge, you have a guilty knowledge. You knew, Peter says, but you rejected him, and you're responsible. You are responsible. Verse 23, Peter fleshes out something that we already saw him talking about in Acts chapter 1 and verse 16. Remember, when he's telling the story of Judas, he talks about Judas's betrayal. And he talks about that betrayal, and he says it had to happen in order to fulfill Scripture. Like Judas's betrayal of Jesus had to take place, Peter says, because the scripture had to be fulfilled. He's speaking to a plan that existed in time beforehand, like a plan that was written down in the Psalms, that that had to be fulfilled and that Judas's actions, for which Judas was responsible, were a fulfillment of a plan of God. And now he fleshes that out more fully. Similar to what Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.9, he speaks about God saving us. He says that God saves us not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Now, most of us in, in the evangelical church get the first part of that, we would say, yes, not because of our works. There aren't many people around saying, God saved me because of my works. 
But the second part is something we don't usually say. We say something like, uh, not because of my works, but because of my choice. I didn't have to do anything. I just had to believe. But that's not actually what Peter's saying. He's saying something starker than that. He says not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Speaking to purpose, Paul says it, Peter says it, there's a divine purpose that precedes all of this, that helps to explain all of this. He refers to God's foreknowledge, but foreknowledge here, as elsewhere, is more than just advanced information. It's not just that God can look down the corridors of time and foresee what will take place. It's more than that. There's a plan. There's a decree. God speaks creation into existence. God speaks reality into existence. He is sovereign over creation. He's sovereign over providence as well. This is essential for Peter because the assumption that you would make otherwise is that Jesus' death is a failure. That's typically how you interpret these things. If somebody comes along, preaches a message, uh, seems like this guy is going to change everything, and then he gets arrested and put to death, you typically would judge that as a failure. He intended to do good things. If he had lived longer, he might have accomplished some of those things, but they killed him. Failure. One of the 12, Judas, betrayed him. That's, that's a failure. Like He chose this guy, and this guy betrayed him. That clearly is a failure. Peter says no, that these things happen to fulfill Scripture. No, these things happened according to a definite plan of God. The, the death of Christ is not a failure in his ministry. It is a fulfillment of his ministry. When we let go of that sense, when we lose that sense that Peter has of, of God's definite plan, of God's sovereignty in all things, then what God becomes for us is a sort of big human. We start thinking of God's ways as being a lot like our ways. God's thinking, God, the way that God does things for theologians who lose sight of God's sovereignty, as Peter expresses it. It becomes easy to talk about God as someone who forms a plan, tries to carry it out, sees it fail, and then tries again harder. That's not the God that Peter serves. That's not the God whose definite plan brought about these things. And yet, and yet, Peter insists on the lawlessness of Christ's death, that Jesus was innocent, but you put him to death anyway, which compounds your own guilt. You did it anyway. You saw the signs, but you handed him over anyway. You're responsible for that. So God's decree doesn't cancel out or overrule human responsibility, which is typically the way we would frame that argument philosophically. Either God has a plan and it is being fulfilled, or we're free agents morally and we're responsible for our actions, but it can't be both. It has to be one or the other. Peter says, no, it's both. It is both of those things. You are responsible and God does have a plan. Those two ideas go together in the mind of Peter without contradiction. They represent a philosophical tension, but he's not worked up about that. Right? He's willing to hold those two things together, and we must be as well if we want to understand the gospel as Peter proclaims it. And then in verse 24, the resurrection, God raises Christ up. You killed him, but God raised him up. 
God raised him up and freed him from the agony of death, Peter says. And he adds this because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So in Peter's gospel, there's a huge emphasis on the power of God. Right? God does the signs. God has the plan. God resurrects. But then there's that note at the end about the grave, that it was not possible for the grave to hold him. Why not? Why not? Why couldn't the grave hold him? You might read that and think, okay, it's because of the power of God again. right? The, the grave has Jesus, but God, whose power is resurrecting him, and the grave isn't as powerful as God, and there's this sort of struggle, and, and the grave just has to give up because it just doesn't have the power to hold him. But I think Peter intends something more than that. It's not just that the grave doesn't have the power to hold him. It's also that the grave doesn't have the right. Another way of putting it, death didn't break Jesus. Jesus broke death. What do you think about the importance of being innocent? The importance of being innocent. The reason that the grave couldn't hold him is as simple as this. The grave couldn't hold Jesus because death is the end result of sin. In Genesis 2.17, that that first commandment that God gives, if you break it, you die. Death is a consequence of sin. Paul, later in Romans 6.23, describes death as the wages of sin. Death is the consequence of sin. Jesus was without sin. Jesus was without sin, undeserving of death. Death had no right to exercise over him. He was righteous. Proverbs 10.16 says, The wage of the righteous leads to life. Sin stops being abstract once you see the connection to death. Think about your own habits. You think about the things that you do in life that could kill you, but actually seem fairly trivial when you're doing them. You're smoking too many cigarettes, but not as many as you used to. You're speeding a lot, but but not when the cops are around. You're running red lights, but only when nobody's coming in, in the other direction. These little risks that we take, and usually nothing happens as a consequence. And yet we're constantly doing things that potentially could get us killed. They're trivial until the moment that they're not. And then suddenly you're like, oh, yeah, I should have known this was going to happen. Sin is like that. Sin is like that for most of us. It's not such a big deal. It's, it's trivial, seemingly small. It's enjoyable. It's a nice thing to do. And, and if you tell me it's bad, then maybe eventually I might see it that way and, and amend my ways at some point. But you know what? It, it's not a big deal until it is until it has consequences. Not every sin leads directly to death, but all sin leads eventually to death. Some of us react to sin and say it's not a big deal, there's nothing wrong with it. We try to argue, try to rationalize that our sin isn't really sin, technically. It's not that bad. Other people, like, okay, it's a sin, you know what? I'm going to do better from now on. I'm going to draw a line under it. I'm going to stop doing those things. And I won't sin anymore. 
If you notice, though, how unimpressed death is with those resolutions, death doesn't care. Death doesn't care about your indifference. Death doesn't care about your resolutions either. Like people who sin egregiously die. People who amend their ways and try to keep their sin to a minimum, they die. That's what happens to all of us. The damage is already done. Sin is no longer an abstraction when it results in death, and death becomes a reminder to us. You can't deny your way out of sin, and you can't amend your way out of sin. The damage is done. Death is the consequence. But not if you're Jesus. That's true of us. That's true of all of us and of every other human being who's ever walked the earth except for Jesus, who was different. He was without sin. When death swallowed innocent Jesus, that was worse than the shark in Jaws when it swallowed that that pressurized canister. But the result was basically the same. Jesus blew up death. Death swallowed something it couldn't digest and was destroyed as a result. If you don't like the Jaws analogy, I have a John Owen for you. John Owen's famous book is titled The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. The significance of the death of Christ is that it it killed death. It broke death. It ended the reign of death. In other words, and this is important, the kingdom of God breaks the grip of death over the people of God. As Paul says in Romans 5.21, when he's concluding his comparison of Adam and Christ, he says, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. To bring it all together, basically, Jesus and death don't get along. It's great to bring Jesus to weddings. Jesus is is a great guest at weddings. He will produce more wine. He will make it a better event. But if you bring Jesus to a funeral, he might ruin the whole thing. He might just raise the dead and ruin the whole purpose that you've gathered. Jesus doesn't do well with death. You take him to a funeral, he'll ruin it. Talitha Kumai, little girl, arise and walk. Lazarus, come forth. Jesus breaks the rules of death. He breaks the grip of death. You see it happening in his ministry, and then you see it happening in his own death as well when he comes forth from the grave. The kingdom of God, this kingdom over which Christ is king, changes the rules of reality. It changes the rules of death itself, and there's nothing abstract about that. There's nothing abstract about what the gospel claims to be doing. It says that Christ conquers death. Hebrews 2 says, He himself likewise partook of the same things, the same humanity, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. His death was the means by which he destroyed death. That's how he did it. Then at the beginning of the book of Revelation, he boasts about it. He proclaims his victory in Revelation 1.18. I am alive forevermore, he says, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So I went there, I destroyed that thing, and I took the keys. I'm in charge now. I have the keys to that kingdom. 
That's what Jesus proclaims. He conquers death. He does more than conquer it, he abolishes it. He defeats it, and then he does away with it. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.10, Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He abolished death, not just sin, not just an answer to sin, but death, the consequence of sin. Jesus abolished it. And then, going back to Hebrews 2, Christ frees us from the fear of death. In 2.15, it says that Jesus delivers all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He conquers death, he abolishes death, and he frees us from the fear of death that holds us in captivity, that holds us in slavery. And when it comes both to accepting the kingdom of God and to rejecting it, you have to realize what's actually at stake, what's really at stake, what the real consequences are in accepting or rejecting it. To reject the kingdom is to embrace death. It's to make peace with death, maybe even to welcome it. Clinging to sin, refusing to name it as sin and repent, that means clinging to the wages of sin, which is death. To embrace the kingdom is to embrace life and to find peace and to welcome the freedom from fear that comes only in Christ. To name your sin and repent is nothing in comparison to this. The life that we gain is so great that that the momentary humbling and humiliation of having to admit your sin and having to turn your back on it, it's one of those things that Paul looks back on when he looks back on sacrifices he made for Jesus and he says, that was trash. I count that as rubbish. That was nothing. What I sacrificed for Jesus, don't feel bad for me. That was nothing compared to what I gained in him. To gain the kingdom is everything. To name your sin in order to do it is nothing. A few years ago, a few summers ago, when I was doing Worldview Academy on the West Coast, a group of us went to the Getty Museum in Los Angeles, and we're walking around the museum, and I saw this this artwork that kind of stunned me. It seemed out of place. It was a porcelain copy of Johann August Nahl's sculpture called The Tomb of Madame Longhans. So you have to imagine a stone sepulcher that's been broken open down the middle, it's covered in skulls and crossbones, and out of this, this sort of hole in the, in the coffin, in the tomb, this woman in a winding sheet is like climbing out of her tomb, and she has this little baby, and uh, it's done in that sort of uh, early uh, sort of uh, romantic era artwork. You think about what it made me think of is like Mary Shelley or uh, Lucy in Bram Stoker's Dracula, who gets up out of her, her grave and starts hunting for little children by night. Terrifying stuff. And I saw this kind of macabre piece of art surrounded by, you know, modern art, and it just felt so out of place and so weird, like something out of a horror story. And so I had to go and look and see what it was all about and read the little plaque. And uh, it just goes to show that sometimes we miss what's right in front of our eyes, We can be blind to reality, even if we're well-versed in the abstractions that are meant to describe it. So here's the reality. This is the description of this work from the British Museum. 
I'd seen a copy of what is in fact a sandstone monument from 1751 that Nall made in the church in Hindelbank near Bern in Switzerland. It was commissioned by Pastor Georg Longhans in memory of his wife, Maria Magdalena Longhans, who died on Easter Eve in childbirth at the age of 28. The tomb is shown opening up at the resurrection as the mother and child beneath come to life. You see the irony? Here I was as a Presbyterian elder going through the art museum, seeing what was probably the most literal Christian art in the whole place. And as I looked on that picture of hope, what I saw was horror. I was looking at life, but I thought it was death. And I know that in that I'm not alone, that we all do it. That whatever our abstractions tell us, the reality that we see so often is the wrong one. We've all been blind to the truth. We've been deaf to the gospel. So what I'm asking you to do is to hear it again from the lips of Peter, by the power of the Spirit, to hear it and to know. People of grace, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And if you come into his kingdom, it is not possible for the grave to hold you either. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.